0: Um, I, you know, I read an article the other day about all the young people who are having to go to therapy now because of climate change is just so overwhelming. The concept is just, you know, making people feel like they have no control over their lives, but we have control over this. We, We can do this. It is totally within our ability to delist this species.
1: This episode is brought to you in part by our sponsor, Tidal Influence, a Californian ecological consulting firm who proudly supports environmental education and all of the diverse conservation efforts that Pelicanus works to highlight. Visit their website at TidalInfluence.com to learn more about what they do to conserve our coastal resources and how you can get involved. In this episode of Conservation Conversations, we talk with Nessa Freshette of the Friends of Bayona Wetlands and Jacob Barbarigos from the South Bay Parkland Conservancy. They are representing the El Segundo Blue Butterfly Coalition in Los Angeles, California. The ESB Coalition's mission is to connect and create local native wildlife habitat capable of supporting valuable species like the El Segundo Blue Butterfly, while engaging the public in educational and recreational events. The groups that make up the ESB coalition do so much amazing work with the communities of Southwest LA to help conserve this beautiful butterfly species. So let's say hello to Nessa and Jacob. Jacob and Nessa, thank you so much for joining us. Um, do you mind just kind of introducing yourselves and just telling us who you are and who you work for? And we'll, we'll go from there. Nessa, go ahead.
0: So my name is Nessa Frichet, and I'm the manager of scientific programs for Friends of Biona Wetlands. Uh, we're a very small nonprofit. Uh, we just recently grew to I think eight people now, uh, but when I first started, there was only five of us, uh, and we are um, dependent on our volunteers for a lot of our habitat restoration success. So that's what makes us bigger than than what we are, and. My main role for the organization is to oversee our science programs. So that includes not just our habitat restoration, which is um, one of our most important programs, but also and what we're going to be talking about here today, but also our, our bird research. So I spend a lot of time out in the field counting birds, uh, paddling around in a little boat at the Bayona Freshwater Marsh, um, trying to identify where the birds are nesting in order to protect their nest. Uh, while any kind of uh, maintenance needs to take place, so that they aren't disturbed. And when you are dealing with an urban wetland, you're in the interface between protecting wildlife and meeting the needs of the human environment as well. So we do our best to protect the wildlife while also protecting the needs of uh, our urban residents. Uh, so spend a lot of time with the birds, but also for our habitat restoration programs, I oversee our vegetation monitoring. So when we go out and we assess the success of our restoration projects, uh, I, I manage that and uh, collecting our data, doing the analysis and the reporting. Uh, and yeah, that's the, the gist of what I do, uh, in including helping to herd the cats related to the El Segundo Blue Butterfly Coalition.
2: Yeah, uh, Jacob Varvarrigos, uh- work as the director of conservation for the South Bay parkland Conservancy and I've been with them since 2017 um, I served as as their president for for uh, a few years my main focus um, has always been uh, urban connectivity trail connectivity and um, and that has a very strong root in wild wildlife connectivity including um, so the the, the this, the very corridors that the wildlife use, uh, we, we can also use for trails. And so my my passion and my background is in uh, project management and uh, trail build uh, and native landscaping as well. And so with the, the South Bay Parkland Conservancy, I, I manage our project base. It's our uh, goal to rewild Different aspects of of um, open space, from from parkland and trail to um, to residential yards, and, and to be able to create a, a map of connectivity throughout the whole of South Bay. And um, so, our projects are geared to kind of fill in the gaps where where we see um, our the biggest priorities and. The, um, the coalition, our involvement with the coalition is, I think is exciting um, because we realize that so many organizations in South Bay, um, we share the same, very same goals of creating that type of wildlife connectivity. And that we all have a lot of exciting projects happening as well.
1: So we're talking about South Bay, Los Angeles, because it is like the most densely packed development area that you can imagine. <laughs> it's just packed full of houses that are all way overpriced, <laughs> and there's just not a lot of open space. But there are these little pockets of open space areas, or like as you mentioned, the little connectivity canyons, or you know, the green belts. And so I think it's so cool. Like as you mentioned, there's a whole group of people not only just one group there's a group of different groups of people that are all trying to one conserve those areas so they don't get developed and two restore them and make them as good uh, habitat for what should be there in the first place <laughs> i wanted to talk with you guys as you guys mentioned you guys are part of the esb coalition um so as the Maybe your official title, I'm not sure exactly what it is for ESB Coalition, but we'll call you the Herder of Cats, Nessa, as you mentioned, you called yourself. Can you uh, kind of talk about what the ESB Coalition is and then we can kind of get into the you know the projects, like more specific projects that uh, you and all the partners have been working on?
0: So a few years ago, Jacob uh, and Ann Dalkey approached us at Friends of Anna Wetlands and asked if we would be interested in starting a coalition about the El Blue Butterfly and we thought it was a great idea. We were part of a couple other coalitions related to other projects like wetland restoration, uh, but the El Segunda Blue Butterfly is our flagship insect, federally endangered, tiny little butterfly. Um, and we, we thought it was a worthy uh, opportunity to bring folks together, uh, especially as you were just kind of talking about the range as from the South Bay, Palos Verdes Peninsula area and then up to Biona um, being the most northern extent of their range. So by partnering in a coalition, um, we've been able to bring together different organizations throughout the range so that we can create that connectivity that Jacob was talking about. Uh, And each group kind of has their own area throughout the range that they are working to do restoration in and When we have our meetings we're able to come back and and report to each other about you know what what we've been doing where we're working where are we expanding um do we want to try to get some more volunteers for a particular project uh you know giving uh different folks ideas about grant funding or uh where we who has time to grow out some plants for a restoration project that came up in our last meeting uh so by bringing all these folks together we really had an opportunity to share resources and prioritize uh, and also get the community more involved. So no one individual has enough time to do all of this across the range. And by breaking it up and sharing responsibilities, we, we make that more possible. Uh, and so our, our website, it was created by this team from all these different organizations. So esbcoalition.org. Uh, has some various information about the different partners, uh, and we're always adding to that whenever new new folks want to join us. Uh, And then it's also a resource for the community. So instead of having to reach out to each individual organization to find out what's going on, you can visit the website to see where there are volunteer opportunities or how folks can get involved. If they want to put Habitat in their own yard, that information is available on the website. Uh, So whatever anybody wants to do from as small as just learning a little bit and sharing information with friends and family to coming into a volunteer event, to converting your yard. We have those resources available to the community as well. And it really wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't for all of these organizations getting together and doing all the brainstorming and work necessary to make that possible.
1: Can we take a real quick step back and just kind of talk about the butterfly itself? Yeah. You know, when we talk about building habitat uh, for the butterfly, what does that even mean? Like, what does it need? Uh, when can we see it? Where can we see it? Is that even common knowledge? Can we tell people where to see it?
0: <laughs> yeah, so the El blue butterfly is a tiny blue butterfly uh, about the size of a thumbnail. Um, the males are that bright blue, that, that iconic representative color, and the females are brown um, as often is in the animal kingdom where the females are a little bit more drab. Uh, so that's, that's our little butterfly that we're working to protect. And it was listed as federally endangered in, um, the original endangered species act. So it's been listed since the beginning of species being able to be listed and it still is. And it was once only found in just, uh, a, a, Three different locations throughout its range uh, had been decimated to that level. Uh, And now the number of locations that it can be found has tripled. So restoration has definitely worked. And one of the interesting things about this butterfly is that it lives its entire life cycle on one species of plant uh, called sea cliff buckwheat or Aragonum parvifolium. And without that particular plant, the butterfly cannot survive. So uh, literally from what it eats as a caterpillar to what it eats as a butterfly to where it pupates all evolve and where it mates, (laughs) all evolves around that one plant. So the bummer thing is that once you lose that plant, you lose the butterfly. But on the flip side, all you have to do really is put that plant in to get the butterfly to come back. Uh, And we... On our website, we have a list of all the plants that we also recommend planting alongside the buckwheat, but that's the critical species. So if you plant the host plant, the butterflies will come back. And we've seen that across a lot of our projects. Uh, and there are, there are areas where the buckwheat exists that the butterfly hasn't found yet, but if we create that connectivity, then we're hoping we can really expand its range and, and reach all of its historically accessible areas that it used to reside in. Uh, so, it's still federally endangered, uh, but every step we take towards expanding its habitat, uh, which involves coastal dune systems specifically, and only within about a mile and a half from the coast. So, it's a pretty narrow range uh, and a very simple, uh, restricted plant palette, uh, but it creates a pretty easy sort of blueprint for restoration. You know where it has to go, you know what plants it needs. And if you, if you, if you put it together, then most likely the butterfly will find it.
1: It's, I think it's a, a good thing or a lucky thing that the, the plant, the host plant is actually a really pretty plant. It's a cool looking plant. It's like, it's got a vibrant green color in the summer. And, you know, it's got that bright white, pinkish kind of bulb flowers. And they could turn like a brick red. in like this time of year and in, in August. So
2: yeah, I, I like the plant and the flowers are kind of like popcorn blossoms. Um, and then they they caramelize once they've been pollinated. and And yet I think even in the in the dormant state, the plant is is attractive. And the when we plant with the um we learn that we need to have at least a third of all the plants is that one host plant. And then the rest of the plants that, that we that we work with are supportive uh, flowering plants, uh, nectar nectar plants within the coastal sage scrub or dune um, habitat, and those those the plants they all live together. They they support a wide variety of, of uh, wildlife and butterflies. Not only the El blue and the monarch, for instance, that are Uh, that so many people talk about, but there's the the PV blue as well. There's, there's a lot of, of, uh, of life that we see that we bring, you know, we, we plant, we bring their habitat back and they, they do come. And so there's this feeling that, you know, we've lost so much and in a place like LA where nothing is original, very few places are original, especially with the landscaping and, and then it's only in the very difficult to access locations like very steep slopes, and areas where, where it just wasn't a value to, to humans to graze their cattle or to farm it or whatever. And so it remained native. Uh, I come from Utah and grew up just around all of the national parks that you hear about and camping and hiking the mountains a lot, um, maybe taking for granted a little bit how closely accessible it all was um, just that desire to explore your neighborhood. I think in your, your surroundings is, is it's native to us all. And so to come to Los Angeles and to see that that's kind of, it's been reprogrammed and reprogrammed over and over again, that that is a hard thing to, to accept. And so for me, like knowing where to go from there, the most basic response is just the plants, bringing the plants back that were already here. That brings the wildlife back and it creates that chain reaction. As simple as Ness has been, as, as she explained, um, with that one plant, the Seacliff buckwheat, uh, we, we, see, we start to see these miraculous uh, results.
1: You guys both work you know, hyper-locally, which is on one hand, so cool, because if, and there are at least hundreds of thousands of organizations just like yours that are saying, we have this small area, we're gonna make it the best we can for the species, for the people, for whatever. And everyone connected starts this super, you know, this network of conservation uh, happening throughout the whole world. The other thing you mentioned that uh, got me excited was the kind of, um, I've heard it called the field of dreams theory. You know, you build it, they will come and some species, some, or especially urban wildlife species, it's not that easy. If you build it, they're like, oh, maybe they'll come like, but they need, they need a lot more, they need more space. They need uh, you know, better connectivity. And with the ESB, like it's obviously not that simple, but you know, if you build it, it's like a high likelihood they'll come. <laughs> It's the nature of urban wildlife. It's like a sad thing to think that if we just hadn't gotten rid of their habitat, they wouldn't be invasive. There was no other, no other factors. It was just the fact that we just paved over the, all their habitat, but the fact that we can still plant plants in the right spots and then make, you know, a network, then eventually we could potentially downlist or delist this species.
2: And, you know, the, the El Cigono blue is, is really a simple, uh, approach and simple plan and so the problem the problem seems vast the problem seems overwhelming as far as what we're losing across the world and species and and yet the solution for the El blue is it's not the it's it's habit, habitat zone is very narrow and so that that actually makes it easy for us to focus on that that area <clears throat> do our part do, do do the job and do it well it, it really is about more species than the Elsguna blue and that's something that the coalition talked about early on I think it's like well what happens when we you know meet this goal and we're able to delist the else you know get the the, the butterfly delisted and um, and we're working along trail corridors and 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 so forth and and what happens when we move outside of of the Elsguna blues boundaries and it's like well then it I think the lessons are, are learned, and, and, and what we've we've been able to be successful, you know, with a very clear effort, you know, with uh, Elsa, Guna, Blue, and, and some of the others, and then that that expands. That, that I think that that gives a lot of momentum to to the, the wider effort.
0: Yeah, I, I agree, and I think that it's also a very tangible message. Uh, Austin, you mentioned how you know maybe. We, we are, you know, we are the cause of the loss to begin with, but we can also be the cause of the return. So we know what we have to do and we have the ability to do it. We're never going to get all the habitat back that we lost. That's not possible, but every person that has a little piece of yard or, um, the green belts or the schools or businesses that have big lawns that we're, it's, it's, you know, becoming a realization that lawns are not in California's future. We need to phase those out, and what a great opportunity to pair that with habitat restoration and create wildlife habitat and butterfly gardens and things that will support the species that we want to protect. And when we think about it in terms of what we each individual is capable of doing, on a, in their own, um, you know, abil- ability. And rather than thinking about the, the really big problems of climate change and sea level rise and how is any one person supposed to be able to tackle something like that? We can't, you know, but we can be a, a part of converting our own yard or helping our schools to, to convert their yards. And so I feel like it's a really important and connecting message that folks can can really attach to and, and think this is something that I can do. I can be a part of this. Um, I, you know, I read an article the other day about all the young people who are having to go to therapy now because of climate change is just so overwhelming. The concept is just, you know, making people feel like they have no control over their lives. But we have control over this. We, we can do this. It is totally within our ability to delist this species. Like Jacob was saying about the the monarch, you know, it's an even simpler story than the monarch, right? The monarch needs milkweed, but and we have the, the non-native milkweeds. And if you're this far distance from the coast, you're not supposed to plant milkweed at all. Or, you know, where do you do wintering versus summering habitat? Like with the ESB, it's it's short and sweet. It's simple. We created a guide to help you do it. And you have friends in the local community to, to help you too.
1: Especially compared to something like vaquita, polar bears. You talk, to, you talk to like a random person on the street about it and they're like, yeah, that's really cool. I, I, don't, I don't want to see polar bears or vaquita disappear, but what am I supposed to do about it? But when it comes to like an endangered species that all it needs is for you to take out your lawn and put in a couple of these host plants, you know, obviously it's not as simple as that, but it kind of is at the same time, you know? And so I think that's what's so cool about um, the coalition and the projects is that it's so tangible for uh, not only you guys, the practitioners? It's very tangible for the community that want to get involved. Like, at least in their neighborhood, they can do something that's that's doing good for a species that needs this. Obviously, because of you know, I, I know how hard you both you both work. So, what was it that made you decide to go this direction? Because you you don't just, I mean, maybe you do, but it's really hard to just fall into this field. So, you have to be really motivated, and you have to really like it. So. What was it? Was it something in high school? Was it something when you were when you were a kid? Where are you from the South Bay and you just love the ESB and you just had to go that direction? Um, Go ahead, Nessa. Can you tell us kind of like how you got into conservation?
0: I would say I started getting conservation focused in middle school when I really discovered uh, what then was global warming. (laughs) Uh, Was really becoming more of a focus, I would say, um, I, I, I say that kind of ironically, because I feel like now it's kind of becoming more of a focus again. Um, but back then I was, I was like, what can I do in my daily life to fight global warming? And, um, I would say endangered species was also a, a really big focus of, of mine. So I wanted to know how, how can I make a difference, became, became a vegetarian, because I knew that was something I could do in my in my own life. I'm not as restrictive as a vegetarian now as I was then. I cheat a little bit, but I felt like, hey, that's something tangible that I could do. Um, it, trying to save a panda, which was always a big focus, you know, the, the, the flagship species, right? The really big, charismatic, the bears, the lions um, I was in middle school. So like, that's what I thought I was going to go out and save those. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, and then, and when I went away to college and to actually learn about how to do these sorts of things, um, that's when I actually fell in love with birds instead. And I fell in love with wetlands and I born and raised in Los Angeles, uh, in the San Fernando Valley, surrounded by cement and um on all sides and I didn't really have that much exposure to, to nature. So it was actually more of an abstract thing. I wanted to help save the planet and I wanted to save these rare animals that I was never ever going to see in my real life. Right. But then when I was in college, I went to UC Davis and I got to see how much beauty there really is and how much nature there really is in our state that I wasn't really exposed to before. Uh, and that really did a number on me and uh, just seeing that we had so many different species of birds that I didn't even know existed. Like we have yellow birds. What? I thought that was like a Caribbean thing, you know, not in, you could just walk down the street and see a, l- a yellow bird. You could do sitting in your car and look out the window and in a street treat. there could be a hooded Oriole. Like that's, that was just crazy to me. Um, and I thought it probably would have been easier to get a job if I had actually just stayed up in Northern California and started to work there. but because I was born and raised in LA and I really wanted to bring that discovery of nature back home with me and and help other folks to find out how they can explore nature too in our cement jungle. Uh, And so I went looking for wetlands in LA, which are really hard to find. Uh, And you drive past them and you don't even know they're there, right? That's the story of Biona. It's just a weedy field. You have to look really hard to find the actual functioning wetland there. Um, but I, but I did, I discovered the Bay foundation and then friends of Biona and that's how I started working here. And, uh, and so I actually didn't start working here because I thought I was going to help save endangered species, but then look at what I'm doing now. I am actually helping to save endangered species, not the ones I thought I was going to be trying to save, but this is even better because I do get to see them in my real life. And I, I know that I'm, I might actually be able to save this one. You know, I, I, I don't have control over, like you were saying, the polar bears and, um, some of the other species that are probably doomed, um, unfortunately, but I can make some real tangible efforts in, in my own daily life. And, and I love that. And also motivating other folks to, to see that, that they can make a difference too.
1: Jacob, you said you grew up in, in Utah, and so that's going to be a little bit different experience.
2: Yeah, I, I uh... Well, I kind of moved around. Um, born in California, and then I was kind of herded around from Arizona to Las Vegas, and then we landed in Utah, and that's where I finished out like junior high and high school. And so, Utah, Utah was def- coming out of Las Vegas. Utah was definitely an outdoor paradise um, that I could go out, and I was connected with the Boy Scouts from a young age. And so, every month, every you know, we're always camping, and we're always exploring these places um it was still a desert uh, a high desert and um i grew up in the urban area in utah and so um you don't have to be in the wilderness you can stay in the city kind of thing people can make that choice but it's still um in utah you see they have 15 20 minute access to ski resort or mountain just an amazing canyon and my, i had a very strong i have a very strong recreational back, background background and living in a community of people who know how to get out and and ski you know mountain bike do all of these things it's it's kind of normal um and so when i came to uh los angeles it was about 11 years ago and uh, i hadn't been working in, in habitat restoration it kind of took a turn into business development and marketing and things like that. And then when I came to LA, um moved straight into downtown Los Angeles. And um quite immediately downtown became an urban national park for me. It was just like Zion or just like these are monuments all around me that I want to go to. Only now there's all of these rules and restrictions that that prohibit you from from getting to a spot in the in the outdoors, you it's your your volition that takes you, your curiosity. You see something you want to go. There is no reason for it. It's just because you want to. And in the city, we lose that, that freedom of movement. We lose that connection to an open space. So my fascination and in, in connection with this whole effort started with, with exploring for myself the open spaces of L.A. County, starting in downtown and then in the South Bay because that's where I live. Um, and with an intent to, uh, my backgrounds in trail design and trail build. Um, and so I saw opportunities to create a network for open space, um, throughout the whole County. And so basically I started working just hyper locally, trying to figure out what was happening. Um, and over the years, um, became connected with the South Bay Parkland Conservancy and through this desire to create more trail connectivity. And that kind of opened up the pathway to uh, the most simple approach is the first thing you can do is to bring the plants back. What we're doing is with the coalition, for instance, um, we're trying to to shine focus on what is being done throughout the whole region and to show people how they can get involved. And so we're trying to show that Hey, listen, it's easy. It's for. It seems like we're all fighting our own battle and we're, we're all trying to do it on our own, you know, but it's like, well, maybe we can get a lot more done just by highlighting, showing more. It's not a competition, you know, it's a common struggle and um, it's something that unites us and bonds us. So for me, um, the last five or six years has been very much habitat restoration focused. When you the question in my mind is what happens when you reestablish a community to this this identity that they've lost to their environment like you know become something new, and we can't really quantify the value of it, but we know it's there, and, and I think that's why there's so much support.
1: Would you say that creating that connection and seeing people find that connection is what keeps you doing this, Jacob? Is that why? Is that what makes you like get up in the morning? Just like, because you know, you've seen it happen and you're just kind of like, I want to keep doing that in more and more spaces.
2: You know, I, I came from the place of, I'm going to go and find it for myself. And I know how to find it. And I grew up finding, you know, and so I would. And I would have, and I would discover a sense of peace and, and calm and w- everything that comes from the wilderness, even just exploring the urban wilderness that is just full of weeds it's still the wilderness. And so I know how to get that for myself. And that can be a place that's, uh, it's, it's, it's nice to have it. But the problem is, is we all need that and we don't have to hide it. We don't have to be afraid of it. We just need to work together. It's a problem of collaboration. And, and so for me, if it were just me, no, I, I would feel like I felt in the beginning, I would feel very alone in this struggle, and that yes, maybe I can put my effort into it for a while and, and make something happen, but then that dies with me. And so that's what gives me hope: is is I see I accomplished much less when I thought I had to do it all on my own. And so the more and the more and the more we can create a platform to enable people within our community to do their part then it's it's all happening simultaneously um, as long as we can organize it and so I think it gives us an opportunity to get really bright people involved uh, locally you know so I hope that we can create an example for the county and when you do that it's it's a wider example you know for the west and 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 on so that's what gets me excited I think
1: yeah. Nessa, what about you? Cause as I said, I, I know how busy you are. I know how hard you work and South Bay is not a cheap place to live. And I know how much we make in this field. <laughs> so it's like, what is it that, you know, obviously this is a passion project. Like you have to really love it to keep doing it. So what is it that, that keeps you in it?
0: Yeah. And I actually live, still live in the San Fernando Valley. So I commute down to Bayona. That's, um, shows how much I, I care about, you know, finding where our wetlands are and making a difference there. Uh, I've always called myself an eternal optimist. So I, I like your focus on optimism, um, continuing to be that has gotten harder over the years. I think as, as we get older, um, the, the pressure to become more cynical, the you know, political struggles, feeling like we're not getting anywhere in terms of making our climate change goals so we can really save our planet. It gets really hard to continue to be that optimistic. Uh, and I think what Jacob was just saying about um, the accomplishments and the successes and being able to share all of that, that's where I get my optimism from is when you can see those impacts in real life and you can see your the effects of your habitat restoration Um, ripping out ice plant is one of the most satisfying things anybody can do it is it's so hard and so wonderful (laughs) because once it's gone and you've got this open space and then you put the native plants back in and you water them you care for them and a couple years later they're looking really good and big and then the year after that there's also going to blue butterflies on there I mean what could be more amazing and hopeful and optimistic than that right you can Literally see the change happening before your eyes, um, and I think change can be really hard for people too. And this is something that I hope that uh, we were just talking about. You know that our society is starting to accept that things need to change, and we need to right the wrongs of the past and bring the habitat back and protect our wildlife. And once we accept that change is actually a good thing, you know, we're we got so used to looking at that emerald green carpet. <laughs> And we need to rip it out and put in our native plants and learn to love them. Um, you know, they're they're not, may not be what we're used to seeing in our urban environment and adjacent urban wildland interface areas. Um, but just like with deciduous plants on the East Coast losing their leaves, our plants over here uh, have a senescence period and they die back for, for a couple of months and then they come back fresh with the new rains. And we just need to get used to that and accept that and learn how to make native gardens that are, that are beautiful and incorporate all the different color palettes that we love and bring in all the animals that we want to see and just make that a part of our daily lives. So no, you don't need to be a wildlife biologist to appreciate wildlife and you don't need to be a botanist to appreciate plants. You know, I, I meet so many people that consider themselves naturalists or just birders or you know, insect enthusiasts and everybody can be that, you know, you don't um, have to make it a professional part of your life, but it can be a part of your life. And it's very rewarding, very fulfilling. And every little bit that we do and every success that we see that we are a part of gives you the motivation to keep going and keep trying and we and keep working.
1: Yeah. So with that, so perfectly said, um, <laughs> how can you know, how can people in the Los Angeles, greater Los Angeles area, how can they get involved with either your organizations, um, you know, anyone with the ESP coalition, but also if they're not in LA, like what advice do you give them to, to, you know, take that, this, this idea and put it into action in their local community?
0: So our website, esbcoalition.org has a list of our partners. So if any of those partners are close to you and you wanna work with them specifically, you can reach out to them. Uh, I also have a volunteer calendar. So you can see some of the El Blue focused events on our calendar, or you can um, find, again, find that organization that's close to you, easy to get to, and then get hyper-involved in their specific projects. Uh, So that's what what I would recommend if you want to start volunteering. Uh, Also on our website is a take action page that uh, has the um, buttons for you to click if you want to put in your own habitat. So it's a uh, totally DIY guide that we work together as a coalition to develop along with a plant palette. So it basically tells you exactly what you you need to do. And we're also working to create a, a sample um, landscape plan. So, uh, look out for that in the future. Uh, they'll help people kind of plan their own, uh, layout. I know, you know, obviously not everybody can afford to hire a landscape architect or contractors to put it in, um, or to maintain it. We do have a list of contractors. So if you can't afford that and you want help to design and implement your, your little garden, you, you can totally do that. Um, and with, with some of our folks there and, uh, but if you just want to do your own little yard, or if you even just want to do container plants and just get started small, um, or work with your local school or local government, um, building to convert their lawn into a native garden, uh, the plants are already listed there. It tells you about, you know, which one's the host plant, how much do you need? What are the other species of plants that are important to incorporate with that? Um, and it has links to, uh, Uh, online resources where you can learn more about the specific plants and it has options for if you don't want to have your garden go dormant uh, late summer. If you want to have color all year round, you can. Um, And there are plants that you can mix in to make sure that you always have something flowering in your yard uh, to provide for the wildlife, but also to make yourself bright and happy every time you go out and see your garden.
1: So Nessa and Jacob, thank you so much for joining us. That was amazing. Like I said, we, we talked about everything from philosophy of life to the, the biology of butterflies, everything in between, and how you can get involved in your area. So thank you so much for taking the time and for all the great work you guys do with your, your organizations. Like, you guys are inspiring. So thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you again to Nessa and Jacob for taking the time to discuss the ESB coalition with us. And even if you don't live in the South Bay of LA, look into what you can do to help your local wildlife, whether it's volunteering or planting native plants on your own property. Every little bit helps. Host and producer for this episode is Austin Parker. Music was provided by A Picture Book Studios. Please like, comment, and subscribe to our page if you haven't already. And thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.